You know, a church facility, it's just a house. It's the family inside that makes it a home. Uh, Seth, who was up here just a moment ago, he and his wife Taylor are looking uh, to buy a house in this area, maybe build something, and uh, they're just buying a house, but they together are going to make it a home because it's the family inside that makes it a home. And that's really what this series is about, is that as we uh, make concrete plans to buy a new house, we're talking about what it looks like to be the family that's going to live inside that. We want to be shaped by Jesus' vision for that, and so that's what we're doing in this series. Uh, We began it last week looking at the beginning of John 14, and in John 14, Jesus said that we shouldn't let our hearts be troubled because he's going to prepare a place for us. We saw that we have an eternal home that is only available through Jesus Christ. If you weren't here last week, I really hope you'll go back and listen to that because so much of the the motivation behind expanding and church planting and all the other things that we do as a church was really found in that message. So make sure you go back and listen to it. Um, But today we're going to continue to just talk about what is it going to be like to be a family inside that home. Now, before we do that, I, I have been getting a couple questions about the house. Uh, right? So if you kind of get this analogy, like we're building a house, we're going to be the family making it a home. But there's a couple of questions about the house that have come up. So the first question that I want to answer before we dive into the text is, when are we moving in? Right? That seems like an important question. When do we get to move into this house? And the answer there is uh, somewhere around May of 2019. That's when our lease on this uh, current facility that we're in now ends. So we're looking to begin breaking ground in like March or April of 2018. So that's the timeline. That's what we're looking at. The second question, this is a really important question if you're ever going to buy a house. Uh, So Seth, Taylor, pay attention to this. Uh, Can we really afford this? Anybody think that's an important question? Uh, Yeah, that's a really important question. Can we really afford this? The answer is yes. We really can't afford this. And uh, here's kind of what this looks like, is uh, we're hoping to put down about 30% on the total construction of this project. So uh, what that would look like would be us hitting the goal of $1.8 million that we're all giving over and above our regular giving. So if you add that to uh, the money that we're saving just as part of our regular savings, as well as a contribution that will come from a big R, from kind of the collective funds of redemption as a whole, you add all that together. I mean, Now, hold on real fast. That assumes that we're all going to give to this, right? So we can't afford it if we don't give to it. But if we give to it, I'm assuming that we're going to do that. Uh, We'll be able to put about 30% down. That's more than I put down on my home. That's probably more than most of you put down on your home. That's a really uh, kind of smart and wise place to do it. Now, the other question just has to do with... um, Right, we're renting versus buying. You know, can we afford a mortgage? Because if you add all that up together, the total construction cost for this project is ten million dollars. Right, so we're looking to put down about three million dollars on that. But you go, wow! If, if you're anything like me, you go, that sounds like an astronomical amount of money. How can we afford that? And here's how we afford that: is when you look, uh, the, the wisest thing a, a lot of people have helped us do is say, okay, what percentage of our budget are we going to be spending on our housing? Right? That's a lot of how you should think about your budget. And uh, Dave Ramsey, for instance, would say that you shouldn't spend more than 25% of your uh, after-tax income on, your, on you know, your rent or your mortgage. And if you include a utilities, it goes to like 30%. So you should spend less than 30% on your housing costs is what Dave Ramsey would say. Um, right now, uh, to rent this building and to take care of it and pay the utilities on it, we pay about 24.5% of our budget right now to do that. So we're well kind of underneath 
uh, where the guru, Dave Ramsey, says we should be. Um, and moving uh, into the building next door uh, will make it where that percentage will go up from 245 to 26%. So if you look at our total, kind of uh, what we expect our budget to be and the percentage of that, it's a very, very uh, minimal jump. We actually decided just to try to translate this into like where uh, more of us live. We said, okay, what if a person uh, made about $60,000 after taxes, what percentage kind of would equate with where we are as a church? So imagine a person that makes that much money after taxes. Currently, to be in this building, they would spend uh, $1,220 a month on their, on their rent and their utilities. Okay, $1,220 a month on rent and utilities. In this future scenario, what we're looking at is it would go all the way from 1220 to 1300 That's $80, an $80 a month jump, not to rent, but to actually buy with a mortgage. And so I think if you kind of look at it that way, it really makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're trying to be conservative about this and wise, um, but it is going to take uh, everybody who calls this church home being a part of it. I hope you're praying about that. Uh, November 20th is going to be our commitment day. We're asking those of you who call this your church home to make a one-time gift on that day, as well as to indicate to us how much you plan to give over the next three years. Um, that's not a small thing. That's a big ask, and I realize what I'm asking. Uh, Molly and I have made our commitment, and uh, we feel the, the sacrifice of that, but we're also just really excited about what it'll mean. So uh, be praying about that, and uh, that's some about the house, all right? So now let's talk about the family. Let's talk about the family that's going to make this house a home, and that's going to be a family that abides in Jesus. That's the name of, today, of today's message, is that we want to be a home that abides in Jesus. So we're going to look at this first part of John chapter 15, and this passage is going to show us three things. It's going to show us the nature of Jesus, it's going to show us the stakes of abiding in Jesus, and it's going to show us how to abide in Jesus. So the nature of Jesus, the stakes of abiding in Jesus, and how to abide in in Jesus. Now, in this uh, passage, Jesus uses an interesting analogy. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father's the vine dressers. In uh, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So Jesus is using this imagery to say, I'm a vine, your branches connected to the vine. And, and here the vine would be like in a, in a winery, in a vineyard that would be used to produce grapes for wine, that sort of a thing. Jesus is using that analogy. And that analogy tells us first something about the nature of Jesus. This, this analogy tells us about the nature of of Jesus. We, we looked last week at how God had created everything in Genesis 1 and 2, and he created us in a perfect home, the Garden of Eden. And he, we were with him in relationship with him. And then in Genesis 3, humanity rebelled. Humanity said, God, we don't trust you. God, we don't think you're in, in it for our good. And we're going to take things our own direction. When that happened, we became spiritually homeless. Now, the way a lot of us think about the story of the Bible is God created everything, then humanity rebelled, then Jesus came to fix it and died on the cross and rose again, and then he's coming back. Now, that's a little too short of a summary of the Bible, okay? Because if that's your summary of the Bible, you kind of don't need this first two-thirds. But you have a first two-thirds, the Hebrew Scriptures, you might call it the Old Testament. What's that about? Well, see, after God had created us in his image to be truly human, 
That image bearing was distorted by our rebellion against God, and so God chose a group of people, the nation of Israel. He said, Israel, I want you to be a light to the nations. I want you to live in covenant relationship with me. And in so doing, as you shine this light to the nations, you will be able to show the rest of the world what it looks like to be a true humanity that lives under the loving care of God. That's what Israel was to do. That was the role Israel was to play. Now, Israel did not succeed in that role, at least not over any extended period of time. And there's a place that we actually read about this in the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah uses this imagery of a vineyard to describe the failure of Israel to be the, uh, the representative people, the true humanity. Here's what it says there in Isaiah 5. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. You see, Isaiah is saying, hey, this is the perfect scenario. Right, he dug it, he cleared it, the choicest vines, there's a watchtower to protect it. Everything that needs to happen to grow healthy fruit is happening. It says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done with it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? God's saying, Israel, I chose you to be this representative humanity that would shine the light to the nations, that would show the rest of the world what it looks like to live in relationship with a loving Father God, and you've blown it. And I gave you every resource you needed, right? You came home from the hospital. We fed you every, you know, you were full every time. You got a full feeding, just speaking the world I live in right now with a five-week-old. Got a full feeding. We wrapped you up. We bundled you. We used all the best ergonomic pacifiers. You know, we read to you every day. We, we cared for you. When your hormones kicked in, we had really thoughtful conversations about how to navigate that. We say you all the best schools. Like, God's going, Israel, I've done everything for you. And you've rebelled. You've yielded wild grapes. You have not been the true humanity that I've called you to be. So, when Jesus says in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, he's not just using an illustration like there's a vineyard nearby. He goes, oh, by the way, I thought of a vineyard. No, maybe that's the case, but... He's, he's saying something really important about his nature, about who he is. He's saying, I'm the true vine. I'm the true Israel. I am the true Israelite who is succeeding where Israel failed. I am going to be, and I am, true humanity, showing the world a light to the nations. Here's what it's like to live under the loving care of God. And as you're connected to me, you'll get to shine that light too. 
Jesus is the true Israel, the picture of a true humanity. And he says, that's what I want for you. I want you to experience the life of my true human flourishing, my obedience to God. I want that to flow through you. And the way that it does is through abiding in Jesus. Now, the word abide, I counted, uh, if I counted right, I counted 11 times in these verses, that it says, abide, abide, abide in me, and I abide in you, and your fruit will abide, and abide, 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 abide. Anybody use the word abide this week? Is this a word you're using a lot? What does abide mean? Any ideas? It means remain. It means stay. It means hold fast. It means be connected to. So Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine, I'm the true humanity, and as you're connected, abiding, remaining, holding fast to me, that life is going to flow through you. And so that tells us the next thing is the, the stakes of abiding in Jesus. The stakes, there's a lot at stake. Now this is really important for us as a church, because we don't want to be a, a, a church that has a really nice house, but isn't deeply connected to Jesus. We want to be connected to him. We want to be remaining in him. We want to be abiding in him. We want his life to be coursing through us. That is so important. That is absolutely essential in this process. And this passage is going to show us the stakes. Here's why. Here's why that's so important. So first, look at what Jesus says will happen if we do abide in him. First, we will bear much fruit. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, it says, abide in me, remain in me, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So if you want to bear the fruit of a life changed by God, you've got to stay connected to Jesus. You have to abide in in him. If you want to bear the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, that kind of new fruit of the true humanity, the, the humanity, the way God created us to be, that is only available if we abide in Jesus. We stay connected to Jesus. If we do that, we'll bear much fruit. The other thing that will happen if we abide in Jesus is we will be pruned for more fruit. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. All right, any, uh, any of you do gardening out here? Show of hands, any gardeners? Any of you ever do any pruning? All right, when you prune, I'm guessing you probably use a pillow right? Here, here, Branch, let me lay you down and pamper you on this pillow. Is that what you do? Or, or, or maybe you get out some sort of massage oil and you, you know, the way you prune is you just, you massage the plant. You pamper it a little bit. Is that how you do it? How do you prune something? What do you need? You need shears. Give me kind of some textural descriptions of shears. Sharp, right? So you, you, you prune things, right? 
Right? Imagine if you could, if your if your little rose bush, you know, whatever it is that you're taking care of, your rose bush, imagine it had emotions and feelings. Right? As you prune it, what would it be saying to you? Oh, thank you. That feels so good. Do it again. Is that what it would say? No, what would it say? It would say, ah! That hurts! Stop! I don't like that! I thought you loved me! I thought you were going to take care of me! What in the world? Right? That's what it would say. Because it just makes, like, you're, you're cutting it. You're hurting it. But you do that so that in the long run it'll be healthy and it'll grow. Listen, some of you are in a season right now where God has the shears out. And his love doesn't feel like a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. And it's cutting away at things in your life. And it hurts. And it's painful. And there's everything in you that's tempted to feel like, ah, God, where are you? God, you don't love me. God, I thought you were going to take care of me. God, what in the world? And maybe... Just maybe, it's actually evidence that you're abiding in Jesus, that he is trimming away at these other things that you've put your hope in or your comfort in or your dependence on, and God is trimming those out of your life so that you can bear more fruit and be more dependent and more connected and more healthy with him. This is not the kind of promise we typically want, but it's definitely the kind of promise we need. So if we abide in Jesus, we bear much fruit, and God prunes us. He allows painful things to happen, so we bear even more fruit. There's some other promises that are more enjoyable, which is uh, verse 7. If we abide in him, we'll be able to ask and receive. Look at what it says in verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Because listen, if you're abiding, if you're connected, if you're having the life of the true humanity flow through you in Jesus, you'll begin to ask for the things that are in line with his will. He'll be eager to give those to you. If we abide in Jesus, we'll glorify God. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We can't bear fruit unless we abide. But if we abide and bear fruit, then we glorify God. Think about that. That's what humanity was created to do. Image bearers of God. Reflecting back to God. His own glorious image. And we only do that when we stay connected to Christ and bear fruit. The other thing that happens when that happens in verse 8 is that we also prove to be Jesus' disciples. See verse 8? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Listen, bearing the fruit of a changed life gives you confidence that you actually are connected to Jesus. Right? Listen, if you've walked forward at a crusade or you've marked a card or you've made some sort of commitment, but your life hasn't changed, you're not bearing the fruit that shows that a new life, the life of Jesus is growing in you, You don't, and you shouldn't have a great deal of confidence that it is flowing in you. And yet, when we obey the Lord, it gives us the confidence. It allows us to say, I'm not connected to the Lord because I've lived a loving or an obedient life, but because I'm connected to the Lord, I'm living a loving, obedient life. And then this promise in verse 11, just amazing. 
or at least the purpose, Jesus says this. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We are on a pursuit of joy. And Jesus says, you will find it in me, by abiding in me, by connecting to me, by living the way you were meant to live. That's how you have full joy. Now, the flip side is, what's at stake if we don't? What if we don't abide in Jesus? What's at stake there? Well, uh, we won't bear fruit. That much is clear from verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can you unless you abide in me. If we don't bear fruit, we'll be taken away, it says in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He'll explain what that means more in just a moment. If we don't abide in Jesus, we can't do anything of profit to Jesus. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I need greater faith to believe that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Because I often think I can do a lot apart from Jesus. And I'm praying for me, and I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for the church in our country, and I'm praying that the that the gap between our heads that say, yeah, we can't do anything apart from Jesus, and our hearts, I'm praying that that, that that gap where our hearts don't really functionally believe it, we don't act like it, we don't live like it, I'm praying that that gap could shrink, that we could actually live lives so dependent on God, so connected to Christ, that we would truly believe that apart from him we can do nothing. Now, verse 6 tells us another consequence if we don't abide in Jesus. And it's kind of a two-phase consequence. The first part in verse 6 says this. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Right? That's kind of what he said in verse 2. If every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Well, verse 6, he says, if you don't abide in me, you're thrown away and you wither. Which means this. In this life now... If you're not connected to Jesus, your life is going to be dry and brittle and bitter and harsh. It's going to dry up and wither away. Which means all of the life and all of the joy and all of the love and all of the goodness that comes through Jesus, you're not going to have any access to it. You're going to have your own limited resources. And let's be honest, in this world, you're going to try to find that kind of endless supply of joy and forgiveness and grace and peace in this world? Ha! Good luck. You won't find it. You will wither away. And then the next consequence continues in verse 6. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So not only is there lifelessness now, but there's agony in the future. There's a lot at stake. We want to be a church. We want to be a people 
that's connected to Jesus, where he answers our prayers. And even when he prunes us, we know it will result in more fruit, where we glorify God, where we're filled with joy. That's who we want to be. Which raises the question then, how? Okay, you go, I'm all in. How do I abide in Jesus? Okay, that's the last thing this passage tells us, how to abide in Jesus. Now, I think there's a lot of confusion among Christians about how to abide in Jesus. And when I say confusion, uh, that's probably not as, as precise of a word. A better word would be there's a lot of incompleteness. So if you ask a Christian, how do you abide in Jesus? A lot of people will say, well, you need to be connected to Jesus through a personal relationship that is Bible reading and prayer and confession of sin and repentance and gratitude, expressing thanks to God, and, and praise, personal worship, devotion, right? It's this, it's this relational thing. That's how, you, that's how you connect to God, is you have this personal relationship with him that you nourish. Do you think that's how you abide in Jesus? You're like, I hope so. Okay, yeah, it's part of it. Sure. Let you off the hook. Yeah, that's part of it. But that's not complete, right? It's, it's got to be part of it. I mean, after all, like, we don't really think we could stay very close to Christ if we never pray and we never read his word and we never confess our sin and we never praise and we never give him thanks. Could you relate to anybody like that and be close? No. So that's absolutely part of it. Don't mishear me. But there's more. And Jesus in this passage tells us there's more to it than that. And he's actually going to give us two more layers that describes what it means to abide. So he does say in verses 4 and verse 9, abide, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. In verse 9, he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Okay, how? How? How beyond just the individual, personal, devotional life? Well, verse 10 tells us this. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Okay, now there's an additional layer. You can't just have this individual great devotional monastic monk nun prayer life. You've got to obey God's commands, the commands. That's how you keep his, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, which means that our moral life matters, our decisions matter, our obedience matters. If you are living a life that is flagrantly disregarding God's word, you're not abiding in Jesus. Now get this, we all sin, but, but people who are in the vine, when they sin, they're grieved by it. When they sin, they confess it. When they sin, they ask for forgiveness. They repent. They turn around. And you do that, you're abiding in Jesus. But if you go, ah, whatever, you know, this is just how I am. This is just what I think. This is what makes me happy. Okay, that's not abiding in Jesus. So there's the personal connection of how we remain in him. There's keeping his commands, but there's one more specific layer that Jesus gives that I think a lot of Christians have just never connected the dots on this passage, all right? So abide in my love, verse 9. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, verse 10. Verse 12, look at verse 12. This is my commandment 
that you love one another as I have loved you. Do you see the formula? Abide in me by keeping my commandments. Here's my commandment, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Now, this is something we talk about a lot at this church. This is something we talked a lot about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is something that we preach about quite a bit. Um, And if you're like, gosh, could we move on to something else? No. Because Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment. Jesus said, this is how we stay connected to him. No, we can't move on. But, But here's, if you have that flinch of like, gosh, it feels like all we do is talk about love. Here's how I, here's where I appreciate what you're feeling. Some of what you're feeling or maybe pushing back on in your mind or heart is that we live in a culture right now that defines love as celebrating and affirming what anybody wants to do. And, and, and because that's kind of the, the operating definition of the culture, when you hear love, 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 you're going... Ah, I'm sick of that. That feels like this kind of mamby-pamby. I just have to celebrate and accept everything that everybody's doing all the time. Is that what Jesus means by love? No. Here's a better definition of love. It comes from 1 Corinthians 13. This is the Apostle Paul describing what love is. He says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, if we just stopped there, the culture would go, man, maybe I like the Bible after all. Yeah, patience, kindness, not being boastful, not being arrogant, not being rude, not insisting on your own way, not holding grudges. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, we should love. Culture would be totally on board with that. Right? I just be patient and kind. But, but it doesn't end there, because here's what Paul says next. He says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Which means there are things that are true, and there are things that are wrong. And to the degree that we celebrate and affirm things that are not true, and things that are wrong, we're not acting in love. That's where the conflict is. That's where the tension is between uh, the scriptures, the gospel, and the culture. That's where it is. And so when we say love, love one another, we're not saying what the culture would say, which is celebrate and affirm everybody's feelings, everybody's actions. No, we'd say there is right and there is wrong, but we're called to love like Jesus loved. Well, what is Jesus' definition of love? Well, he said it there in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, class, how did Jesus love the disciples? He served them. Some of you went, he died on the cross for them. Hey, you're jumping ahead in the story. We're not there yet. At this point in the story, right, Jesus hasn't died on the cross. They don't know what he's talking about. But when Jesus says, love one another the way I've loved you, what's he talking about? Well, go back in your Bible, a couple pages or a few swipes to the left, John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, we have this amazing description of how Jesus has loved 
his disciples. Look at what it says in John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Right, this is the preface John gives. Like, what you're about to read is how Jesus loved his disciples. That's what it's saying. And then these next verses are mind-blowing. They're crazy. Look at what it says in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 